You are listening to Prickly and Blooming, brought to you by LaJoy Society. And now, your hostess, Jesse Browning. All right, all right, all right. Hello, hello, hello. Here we are again. Uh, episode two of now our second season. And if you listen to the special episodes in June, this will be a familiar name and voice to y'all. So how I met Lorna was uh, we recorded an, an you know personal narrative episode, which you're about to hear right now. And then after we recorded that, you know, like a week afterwards, when um, obviously everyone was watching and wondering how they could help our country right now and our people. And um, as we're all talking about race and just everything that we want to learn and know and do better, you know, Lorna reached out to me and said, I know it's not, you know, traditionally your topic, but would you like to hold, host some conversations that are relevant right now? So we did those. And then we released those before this. So in chronological time of my conversations with Lorna, this episode came first. This is how I met her. But then we recorded the special episodes. But of course, I wanted to put the special episodes in June when we didn't have any other episodes coming out. So I hope that you listened to the special episodes with Lorna. And now you're going to hear her story of how she got to do the amazing work that she does in in schools and how she got to where she is in this amazing spot. So yeah, here you are. Here's Lorna's personal, this can't be my life moment (laughs) and story. So here I am today with Lorna. Hi, Lorna. Hi, Jesse. Hi. Um, I'm so happy that we got to join together on this afternoon in our COVID experience to talk to new people. Yeah, thank <laughs> you for having me. Of course. Thank you for calling in and joining me today. And I'm so excited to share this story with everyone. So I always start with a little bit about you. Is what what could, what should we know about you before we hear your story? Yeah. So I uh, I live in Austin, Texas, and I was born and raised in San Diego, California. And I am married, no kids, but I do have a dog and a cat who keep us busy. And yeah, I'm just excited to be here and share my story. And I want to thank you too for um, for giving a platform to women's stories and sharing our stories. Such a important thing that we don't always get to do, um, but it brings about healing, as you know, for the storyteller and for the listener. So thank you. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. This is like something that I, I feel like it's an answer to that. Um, I have to uh, get it right, but I can't ever get the quote right of like, you know, be kind. Everyone's w- walking through something. You don't know what's yeah. going on. This is like my answer to that is like, let's talk about maybe not actively what we're going through, but what we went through. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think sure. there's so much, just like you said, so much healing and so much to be learned, you know, and I learned so much from listening to other people's stories. I know for sure. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Yeah. So let's hear it. They are, our, our, our the thread that holds this whole show together is like the moment that like, this just can't be my life or, you know, uh, just not this. What? What do you have to share with us? Yes, when I when I heard that prompt or when I saw that prompt, my mind went directly to the place that I'm going to share because it was such a huge thing for me. And so this was a couple, well, 
Yeah, this was a couple of years ago. I was in the middle of living my dream, which which was to earn a PhD. And so, you know, I had finished all the coursework and and the last part of earning the PhD is you have to do original research. And so I had started my research. I already had the data. I had analyzed the data like I was at the finish line, pretty much, or really close to the finish line. And all I had to do was write up everything that I had just done, you know, and I couldn't, I was stuck. I was stuck and it was days and weeks and months. And I would just sit there in front of my laptop and I, I couldn't write anything. I thought it was, I I later thought it was a writer's block, but you know, writer's block is such it's such a broad term. And when you're in the middle of it, (laughs) it's so much bigger than that. And so I got to, so that was my, that was my, this can't be my life. It's like, I got this far. How can I get this far and just completely be stuck? And so I, you know, those, those messages in my head just kept came in full force. Like what's wrong with me? You know, why can't I do this? This is what I wanted or, you know, I must be stupid. I, who do I think I am to try to even do this? And it was just this loop of those like berating thoughts that just made it worse really. But I didn't know how to get out of that cycle. So every day it was, me trying and then me hearing those voices and me being stuck. Mm-hmm. And it was, this all sounds like your worthiness, right? Like all sorts of worthy, like I'm not worthy of this. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. Whoa. So now we like <laughs> rewind a little bit. What, you know, what got you, what was your history that got you to that day? What was going on? What was the landscape of your life leading up to that? So I had, you know, right after high school, I went to college and I got a degree and um, got a master's degree and I started working and I forever wanted to help um, low income youth to be the first in my family to go to college. And so I was able to do that and had been working at that, you know, pretty much since after I graduated and, um, and it was great and, you know, I enjoyed it, but after a while, I just wasn't feeling, um, I just wasn't feeling challenged anymore by it. And I also, the, the program that I was running at the time, we were funded by a grant that allowed us to serve 50 kids in three school districts. And we did really great work with the 50 kids but our um, waiting list was like over a hundred when we were only funded to serve 50 kids and, and 50 kids in three school districts. That's like a drop in the bucket. That's, that's nothing. Yeah. So it's not even a measurable percentage. (laughs) Like it was, it was like 2%. And so you know, I, we did a really great job with our 50 kids, but my mind kept going to number 51 and 52, the kids that were on the waiting list. And I just thought, you know, this is so, is it really fair for these kids who may not have gotten the information about the program early enough? Is it fair that they don't have access to this kind of support? So I had been, um, people had told me throughout my years that I should pursue, um, a PhD. And I was working at a university. I worked at universities mostly for my career. So that's kind of the thing 
I mean, you know, a lot of right, right. Everybody has a PhD. That's the, that's the path, yeah, right? Exactly. That's, yeah, yeah. So it was all around me. And so, you know, even back then I thought, well, that would be nice, but you know, I'm not that person. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I just, I was so, I I wanted to do something else. I wanted to, you know, have a bigger impact. And I knew if I wanted to do anything more at a university, I would have to get that degree. So I just applied for the university, the local university, which is a pretty good one, but I didn't apply anywhere else. And I thought, okay, if this is supposed to, if this is meant to be, then, then the door will open. And so I got in and they gave me a fellowship I didn't even apply for. So I'm like, okay, there's the sign. There's the sign. Yeah. (laughs) So, so yeah. So that's what brought me back to school. Two years then, right? It's a two-year program. So then that's what brought you back to school. I'm thinking about like what got you to then writing, you know, the final, it's a two-year program, right? Well, it's four years. Four. Okay. um, Four. And for some of us, it takes longer. (laughs) Right. I, I'm not in the academic world. I'm like, was no, it two more okay. years than you already had? No, PhD is four after. Yeah. <laughs> I got a bachelor's. That's it. <laughs> hey, that's a big deal. That's a big yeah. deal. <laughs> um, so like in, you know, in those four years, okay. So when you start your, your PhD program, right. How, what was, what was that like? Cause I'm assuming that there was some, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, stories playing out in your mind about whether you should be there. Well, even, so I was, I was in my mid thirties when I started. And so I hadn't been in school for 15 years and things had changed, you know, Uh, they got (laughs) electronic, right? Exactly. Like, Oh, I, I don't have to actually be at the library to access this stuff. So, and also uh, most of, it felt like most of my peers, or at least half of them, it seemed like they had just finished their bachelor's degree. So there was a lot of people that were, you know, young 20s. And then my program was educational leadership and um, policy. So there were also people who were there to get their superintendency degree or their principalship degree. So that many of us were also working and um, some of us were not in our 20s. So, but what I didn't, what I was not expecting, you know, I had lived life, I had, you know, a career and everything. But when I went back into the classroom, all of those feelings and messages from when I was a kid and a student came back. And I was not expecting that at all. So yeah, the process kind of forced me to recognize that and come to terms with those messages. So um, like one of the big things was in middle school, I used to like being a student and I used to like learning. But in middle school, um, my peers around me, they started copying off of me, cheating off of me. And I did not, I didn't have a voice to say no. So I just let them and it felt so horrible. And so the only solution that my little brain could come up with back then was to stop doing my homework so that they would stop taking my homework and cheating off of it. So then it, it became, and what I, I now have language for it. It's, I, I defined my life by my pain, right? 
Okay. The uh-huh. pain was that I was, that people were cheating off of me, which I didn't want them to do. So I became defensive around that. And even though I liked learning, I stopped being a good student to protect myself. And so my pain defined me and it stole my um, opportunity to really um, excel excel and build my my passion and joy at the time. And so, you know, I had gone on to go to college and everything, but being back in school, all of those feelings flooded back in. So that whole conflict of, you know, how I define myself in the classroom and layered on top of that was I hadn't been in school in a long time. And, you know, my peers, half of my peers had just finished their master's and they were just up to date with all the readings and everything. So all of that clumped together, you know, and like you said, I said a few minutes ago, you weren't that person. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that just reinforced that story in my head that I'm not that person. I, you know, a lot of people with PhDs end up being professors and I never, I never saw myself as a professor, partly too, because I never saw professors that look like me, you know? So ding, ding, ding. (laughs) I never had a teacher. So my, my ethnic background is my parents are um, immigrants from the Philippines. And even though I was born and raised in San Diego, my identity is very much Filipino American. Um, and there are a lot of Filipinos in San Diego, but coming to Texas, it was, it was an also, um, I was having to live in my body in a different way because people were defining me for me in ways that I hadn't experienced before. And how old were you when you got to Texas? I was 26, 27. Okay. So after, mm-hmm. after college? Yeah. Yeah. You came here for work. I came here. For, I actually um, went to College Station to work okay. at Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so here's a funny story. So, I I worked at in the Department of Multicultural Services at Texas A and M, and um, and May is Asian American Month, and so I started at Texas A and M in January, and then May comes. And the local news station called the Department of Multicultural Services, which makes total sense, to ask them if someone can come to the morning show and talk about Asian American History Month. So they tap me, and I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know anything about Asian American <laughs> History Month. <laughs> because where I came from there, you know, there are a lot more Asians in San Diego and San Francisco yep. where I was living than in College Station. And so I wasn't, I I didn't have to like be the bearer of all information. And then I go there and I'm like, and I couldn't say no. I felt like, well, you know, I have to be representative of my people. Right. So that night I was, and and it was like for the next morning, the 5am show. So I was just like, doing all this research and everything that I could so that I could give some useful information. But that's kind of, you know, I, I had to, um, how I was seen and how I lived um, changed because my environment changed because I was one of very few for the first time. Oh, that's so interesting. Like um, situational cultural identity. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Because, yeah. you know, your cultural identity was the same. You know, you're 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 the same person you were in California versus Texas. But the context that you're in changes your identity. Mm-hmm. Like you became the authority. Like you said, I have to, you know, I have to do this. Yes. And I, I mean, I knew about my family history and, and everything, but I didn't know the history of all of Asia, Asia and Asian American crammed that night right (laughs) 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 but I was you know also thankful for the opportunity right yeah yes 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 like I'm so glad to hear that they you know the news station was like we want to highlight this we want to you know make this part of our reporting yeah that's great oh my gosh I love it (laughs) so let's say in you know, you've started your PhD program, which is four years. We've all learned. <laughs> um, minimum four years. Maybe. Minimum four Maybe years. Right. Take longer. Right. Right. Yeah. That's the, you know, expected where I'm like, exactly. two? Is it two? That's masters. The masters is two, right? Yes. Yes. All right. There we go. It wasn't wow, totally out of left field. Uh, okay. So, and then between that and, um, like the end, you know, you're, you're writing, you're writing the paper or maybe we get to get to that point where, you know, how did you end up getting yourself unstuck? Is there any more to tell us about like before, you know, the moment and then what happened after how you, how you did, I assume finally write the paper. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. I did finally write the paper and I finished last, last May. Um, so so, you know, up until you do your original research, you're taking classes. And when you take classes, you write papers. And when you write papers, you're, you're reading other people's work and you're summarizing other people's work, right? So for me to be stuck in the phase of me writing my own work, it just highlighted that just like that middle school kid who didn't have a voice to say no to the people that were cheating off of me, I didn't, I hadn't fully developed my voice. I didn't have a voice, you know, and, and it wasn't, I mean, I, I had my voice in other aspects of life, but when I had to put my, you know, put my thoughts down on paper for it to be critiqued by five professors and, you know, and have my name on it, I just, I froze up, I froze up and I realized, um, that that I I I didn't have access I I didn't have confidence I guess to to say what I felt and so after many semesters where I just was doing the same thing and not being able to finish something told me I needed to get into my body that I had been stuck in my head you know, doing all this academic work for years and that I, you know, I always think about balance and things and that, and that I was unbalanced. I was very much, and for many years in my head and needed to get into my body. So I just thought about taking a dance class. And so I, um, you know, I searched for dance classes and things like salsa dance or ballroom dance classes, or even like pole dance classes. came up and I'm like (laughs) that might bring up some other issues (laughs) that would definitely get me into my body but yeah (laughs) (laughs) 
it really wasn't like calling me. So, but, but I kept thinking I need to somehow get into my body. So I remember this place called Casa de Luz here in Austin and they have this great restaurant, but they also have like these um, activities and workshops that are always centered around self-growth. So I um, looked on their website and they had a women's empowerment dance class. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, that's what I think I need. So I went and the instructor led us through activities that, I mean, just basic activities. And by the way, I grew up in um, an evangelical church. And so dancing was not allowed. So, um, so even like she just had us, you know, moving our hips and doing things to help us loosen our body. And um, this was not, I mean, there were other women there and it was resonating with all of us. So I realized I used to attribute a lot of stuff to my evangelical background, Mm -hmm. but I realized this is, this is more universal than that. I mean, it's definitely connected. But do you think it was more like woman? Yes. Yes. So the instructor talked about shame and our bodies and I was going through shame, not related to my body necessarily at that time, but that was the overwhelming feeling I was feeling being stuck in this PhD program because I'm like, what's wrong with me? You know, and it just was the cycle of shame for not being finished. And so, um, so that dance class afterwards, I, I like ran to my car and I was just crying and crying and bawling in my car because she had tapped into something you know, that needed to be tapped into in me that was really raw and that I hadn't taken the time to look at. And so that just really opened up the the door for me to go through this process of self-healing. And I'm just so thankful for it, you know. Um, And I think back to the person who was so stuck and beating myself up. And it's, and if I didn't go through all of that, I would have never gotten to the point that allowed me to start myself healing. So now I just, I I try to remember that, you know, when things are not going the way I think they should be going, well, me not being able to graduate on time (laughs) right? (laughs) was not, you know, that was not my plan. But because I, because I, found myself there that was the only place I could that the door to self-healing was you know got it yeah no exactly I was just talking about this earlier today in therapy (laughs) saying like in my moment not like I don't want to go to the point where I'm grateful this shitty thing happened um but I can create meaning from it for myself yes Yes. And you know, the, the dance classes led me to the, this like women's empowerment workshop, which then led me to books. And, um, and I had taken time off from, from pressuring myself to write because I'm like, let me just, let me just stop. (laughs) Right. Well, it's, let me ask you this. Um, maybe, you know, a little more about writer's block than I do. Is that kind of one of the things is just to fucking stop trying? I, you know, it helped me. 
it helps yeah, me like for sure. walk away, yeah. right? Give yes. it, give it some time. Give it time, and and again, going back to this whole kind of everything happens for a reason thing, you know, like if it's not happening naturally, then I, me forcing um, myself to do the exact same thing over and over again <laughs> isn't necessarily going to make it happen. Yep. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. yeah. So after dance class, you're in the car. You're like, oh, shit, something just peaked out, right? Yes, yes. Where do you go, where do you go from there? And at that time, I didn't know, like, I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was something, and I knew it needed attention. And I also knew that I was happy to not be writing or trying to write. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like it was another thing to focus on that um, that was also constructive. So um, so a friend of mine, um, she's also in the Ph.D. program and she was she's doing her research on Asian Americans. And so um, she needed a book from the library. And so I said, you know, I need to return books. So I'll just I'll just get those books for you. So, um, so I went into the stacks to, you know, get her books off the shelf and, um, like poking at, so this is a huge university library, tons of books, you know, they just all look the same. They're all, (laughs) and I was looking for the specific, you know, number, do we decimal number to get for her? And right next to the book that she needed was this book that was poking out and it was on Filipino American identity. And so I just looked at it and, and I, I checked the book out for myself. And so it was this edited book. So there were chapters that were written by different authors and on the back were, were profiles of all the authors and pictures of them and like little bios for them. So I, um, I was home. I actually had bronchitis. (laughs) So isn't that interesting? Like bronchitis and I I have access to my voice. Yes. Uh huh. So I was laid up with bronchitis for several weeks and that book was, was near me and it fell on the ground and I picked it up. Like I picked it up from the pages instead of like picking it up as a whole book. I just was taking it from the page, like how you should not treat a book. (laughs) (laughs) And so like I, I grabbed like the back flap and maybe 10 pages to pick it up. And when I picked it up is when I saw those bios. And so I started reading them and I just saw women who looked like me for the first time who also had PhDs. And so it's, I'm telling you, I'm just crying this whole time. So I just started bawling, like feeling validated, like those messages of who do you think you are and people like you don't get PhDs. Like here was this book that was totally validating me. And, and like the whole everything, like it was just so spiritual is the only word I can think of. And and, um, and transformative. And so, so I actually Googled, um, a couple women on the list and ended up, you know, in this Google rabbit hole and ended up connecting with, um, 
actually a couple of women and they, they kind of mentored me. They kind of took me under their wing and mentored me and, um, helped me to connect because my parents, um, they were born in the Philippines in the part of the Philippines that was very active during World War II. They were children and they both ended up being orphaned, um, during the war, their, their parents died. And so they had really traumatic, um, childhood experiences. And then my dad joined the U S Navy and that's how they ended up in San Diego. And they never talked much about their childhood, but I, I started realizing how this whole concept of being quiet and not, not exerting your opinion, like for survival, that's so important, especially in their context as children. My dad grew up in um, San Fernando, La Union in the Philippines, which is right on the coast. And it was occupied by the Japanese during World War II. So they all had to evacuate their homes and live in the jungle. And so they really, they really had no voice and literally had to write that for survival. Right. And had to be quiet. Exactly. Exactly. And so like that was very much their experience and very much their trauma, but, but they, that's how they learned to exist and survive in this world. And they also taught that to their kids because they wanted the best for us. Right. Yes. Yes. And so all of this, all of this stuff was just coming up and I was able to, um, to one, identify it and then two, like, um, process it. Um, and by processing it, I mean, just feeling, allowing myself to feel the fullness of those realities because, because if you don't, then it just stays in you. And again, you are defined by that pain, but when you allow yourself to feel the pain and our bodies are much more resilient than our mind knows, <laughs> and we will not die from feeling yes. from, you know, difficult emotions, even though we may think we will. Yes. But we're supposed to process those. And once we, when we process those, when we look at those truths, then, and, and feel the feelings, um, then we can move past it. You know, the only way through, the only way out, I, is, out through. is through. Yes. 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 So I had, so I was just so thankful for that journey. And, you know, so it delayed my graduation, but my graduation was delayed anyway. It's not like I could have written, (laughs) you know, I was doing everything I could and it wasn't working anyway. So, but, and, and that was like a year of, of work and connection, like amazing connections, like that book, you know, just, just, I love that it was like literally jumping at you. It was like jumping off the shelf, jumping into your hand, like, hello. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And then even like, so I checked it out and I didn't read it. Right. Then I get bronchitis and, and, and I'm, I'm stuck in bed. Yeah. With no voice, no voice and nothing to do. So, okay. I'll look at this book, you know? And then just connecting with people um, who, and so I'm just so thankful for, for the journey. And so now, you know, I, I have cleared a lot of that old pain that again, I wasn't even conscious of. Um, And so, yeah. 
it's made me think of this author. I'll talk about him. So he is a child of um, uh, survivors of the Holocaust, and he does. He's studied. I think his name Matteo. Yeah, he studied. Yeah, generational trauma. Gabor, Gab, Gabor yes. Mate. Yes. yes, yes, yes. I was like Mateo, <laughs> yes. close. Yes. yes, Gabor Mate. Yes, that's what when you were telling your story about your father. That's what I kept thinking of was his story about you know the generational trauma. I mean, he has a better, but that's what it keeps sticking into my mind. And so, if anybody's listening to this, um, check him out. Uh, what was his name again? <laughs> <laughs> Gabor Mate. Gabor Mate. Yes. 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 So I've totally gotten into. Um, into learning about trauma and intergenerational trauma and also trauma-informed approaches um, that can be applied in schools. So, um, so it's not just our own traumas, it's also the traumas of our parents and our ancestors that we can carry. And so the wonderful thing is that we as a society know more about this, right? And research has been done on this and we can heal ourselves. Um, and so, so yeah, so I got quote unquote unstuck and, um, was able to finish writing. And let me tell you, I wrote, I finished it so fast. I finished my dissertation so fast. And I just think about, um, the person who would have written it before all of my healing journey and, or the voice, the person and the voice that would come through and then the voice that came through at the end, you know, in the final version. So I did write about trauma because my dissertation is on the school to prison pipeline. And I analyzed essays written by youth, 325 youth, and about half of them were incarcerated. And so they responded to the prompt. If there was something that someone could have said or done to help you along your path, what would it have been? And so um, the answer, do you want to know the answer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is love. <gasps> yes. And so. Oh, Y'all get the tissues out. <laughs> <laughs> so they said, appreciate me, be there, care, encourage me, listen to me, love me, support me, talk to me. Like these kids are not asking for an Xbox or a PlayStation or a car or anything like that. They just want to be listened to and they want to be heard and they want to be loved. And so that, that's such, so I just, I also felt the weight of that data because I got that data early on and I got it from, through a friend of mine, Mandy, who just called me up in the, in, in the middle of just in the blue and she had moved to Seattle like 10 years ago and we worked together when she was here in Austin. And she just called me up and said, hey, what are you up to these days? And I told her, she's like, hey, you need to meet this person. And she probably has data that you can analyze. And so like this whole process of this PhD just was really doors just opening for me. And so the work was really my self-work, you know, like I, that's, I felt, I knew, like there was a part of me that knew all of this, that, that this is I, almost like sacred, you know, like, the, and the data that I received, those essays, they were not typewritten, they were handwritten. So even though I didn't get to meet every one of these 325 kids, 
you can see personality, you know, the humanity of them through their handwriting was just so clear. And I always had this, this, um, I don't want to say pressure, but I, I knew, I knew the responsibility that I had in honoring their experiences and honoring their voices. So basically I had to, I had to heal myself and get in touch with my own voice so that I could then elevate their voices in a way that honored them and was, did, wasn't clouded with my own ego and stuff so that their voices could be heard. And, um, and I just, I just think that, that, that what they have to say is so important. And in the world of education, there are so many, there's so many new approaches and innovations and things, but not very often are those approaches informed by the actual kids who are living those experiences, you know? These kids, the 325 essays that I that I had the honor of analyzing, those kids, they're living it, you know? Yeah. Yep. So And let's learn from what they can report back. Right, right. Yeah. That's huge. That's awesome. Like I love oh, simple. You know, it's yeah. the simplicity yeah. of it is what's so striking. Exactly. I love that you're now implementing that. Well, so now, so now I'm doing research and um, there is a practice called restorative practices and it's connected to restorative justice, um, which comes from indigenous practices in Australia and New Zealand and has been part of the education system in Australia and New Zealand for over 25 years. And then it made its way through Europe and Canada and is slowly making its way here to the U.S. And it's about, um, it's about how to approach kids when they um, misbehave, basically. So the traditional approach, depending on the severity of the misbehavior, but the traditional approach would be to suspend the kid, um, to even expel the kid. But the indigenous approach is such a beautiful thing. And it's like, um, let's, let's, it is about accountability, but it's also about relationships and harm. And so they focus more on the harm that was caused and repairing the harm. So it's not like you cause harm, go away. That's what that's what expelling does, right? Right, but, right, and that just pushes it for yes. the, perpetuates the cycle even more. Exactly. Now you're isolated. Exactly. Now there's nobody to uh, hold the accountability with. You know, yes. Blah, blah, blah. yes. And the restorative way is okay. You caused harm, so let's get you together with the person that you caused harm with, and then let's get also, you know, the elders, the people in your family, the teachers your friends, and let's talk about the harm you cause. Let's come together as a consensus of what can be done to repair the harm. So there's total accountability there. But then what can we also do to repair the relationship that you that is now severed between you and that person and even you and the community, depending? Because even, you know, like vandalism is an example where there's not one person that is harmed but a greater. Yes. Yes. So, it, and it, so it teaches the person 
how to how to reconcile, how to take ownership, and it includes a plan to continue to include them in the community. So it's um, it's been used in the justice system. Um, and that's restorative justice, but restorative practices is just doing the practices, even though someone didn't necessarily commit a crime. So that's being implemented here in the local school district. So I'm um, part of the research team that's researching and documenting, implement, implementing this approach in schools that aren't, that didn't necessarily ask for it (laughs) (laughs) because the district selected the schools, the schools didn't select themselves. So it's really organizational change, um, but also implementing this real healing kind of approach to working with kids. Wow. I, from my, you know, (laughs) perspective, you know, in my humble opinion, this is the work that needs to be done. Yeah. Like this is these kids. Um, that's how you're going to reach them. You know, it's like the age old Martin Luther King Jr. Like, you know, love is what's going to, ch- you know, chase out that darkness. Yes. There's that quote, his quote that I love so much. Um, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can. Um, hate cannot drive out hate, only love can. Yes, I mean, that's what was resonating in my head when you were just talking about that. I just kept thinking of like, yes, it needs to be approached with loving kindness. And that is then modeled as behavior, you know, because those children that are learning self-compassion and compassion and, you know, not just vilifying and um, isolating. Right. And part of the work is with the adults too. Kind of like I had to do my work um, on my voice in order to elevate the voices of the youth. You know, the statistics have shown that um, kids of color are given harsher disciplinary action than, than their white counterparts. And so part of that is, you know, just the biases that are, that are inherent, not surprising, you know, growing up in the society. And so really taking a look at that and taking a look at where that comes from. And do we really, as do I, as an individual really believe those things or are those just habits of thought? And so challenging our habits of thought and taking ownership of our thoughts um, that to me is what mindfulness really is getting at, you know, and, and when, when we're no longer living from our pain and we're no longer living from these automatic, you know, messages that, that society gives us, that's when we can truly be rooted in our foundation and rooted in who we are and live our authentic our authentic life. And that's, and that's what I believe we're all here to do when we all can individually live our authentic truths, you know, like what a beautiful world that will be. My, my other favorite quote these days is by Rumi and he, his quote is, I, I used to be clever. So I wanted to change the world. Now I am wise. So I am changing myself. Yep. I just ran across that like just this week. Yep. (laughs) I love I'm so wonderful it's so true because it ripples out everyone it does. start start in the center and it'll ripple out That's just watch right. you know <laughs> just yeah. watch yeah so I also do um so I also do cultural proficiency trainings also to kind of just 
um, break down the social construction of race and how we got here. And in this day and age, you know, it's so it's so relevant to what's happening in our world where folks are, you know, being killed for the way they look and what people assume about them. It's, um, it's, it's just something that we need to talk about. We don't, we don't get enough. We don't learn enough in school about race and race relations and where it came from. Cause we didn't, as humans, we didn't always identify by race. Um, and so, so I, I, I do trainings on that also in a way that, um, you know, I take that, I take that topic. It's, it's not, it's a heavy topic. And I feel as a facilitator, it's my job to make sure that people, that the information is accessible and I'm not accusatory and I'm not making, bringing people to a place of defensiveness, but that I'm bringing them to a place of openness and curiosity and facilitating dialogue around that. Right. Right. Not participating in this like good, bad binary. Exactly. Crap. Yeah. Exactly. Awesome. So I like to ask people, um, what tools that helped you along your, your journey and your path? Like, did you, um, continue to do dancing or was that just a one-off thing? Uh, do you journal? Do you have a morning routine? Do you, you know, only eat uh, vegan or uh, I don't know, like yeah. <laughs> whatever, Yeah. you know, what, what helps you, you know, stay in this great, like mindful spot to be able to like do your work from? Well, well, first of all, um, when I first got stuck, I went to therapy because that's, that's kind of my go-to and I'm all about therapy. My master's is in counseling, by the way. So okay. I'm all, all about right. therapy, you know, but therapy did not help me this time. So, um, and the dance was kind of a gateway, but I didn't keep that up. But what I do now is I do have a morning practice and I journal a lot and um, I have a Monday morning practice where I kind of set my intention for the week and set a goal for the week and I um, calendar and I said Monday morning, but I've started to do it on um, Sunday nights. Actually, I find that to be a little um, more set the table. Yeah. Yeah. And I also do yoga. So I found in this process, I found Kundalini yoga, which there's a lot of negative stuff written about it, which is uninformed information. But Kundalini yoga is, you know, the yoga that I was introduced to before and had practiced before was very much about stretching the muscles and uh, physical strength, which is all very important. But um, Kundalini yoga, and I think the tradition of yoga is more about balance. So it's definitely about the physical aspect, but it's also about the mental aspect and clearing our minds, you know, of that chatter. And so I do practice Kundalini yoga, which includes the physical aspect, but it also includes chanting. And, um, and there's this song at the end. I don't know if you've ever done Kundalini yoga. I've, I've taken yeah uh, a couple back in season one. I uh-huh. had a guest. She was a Kundalini yoga teacher. And um, how I know her is from a workshop she did in Atani to live in. So I've done like a weekend. Okay, of nice. Kundalini. Yes. Well, yes. That, you probably know that song that classes end with. It's, it's actually an Irish prayer. And it's the, the longtime son. 
I, we must have done it, but I, yeah. I'm not recalling it. <laughs> well, I remember, I remember you saying that you belong to the Kleenex Club, and when you said that, yeah. I'm like, oh my god, so do I. Yeah. Oh, I, oh, I cried at her workshop. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the first class I went to at the end, so you're in and amongst all these other students, and they know the song, and so you just have all these voices singing this song, and it's really simple. It's May the long time sun shine upon you, all love surround you, and the um, true light within you, may the true light within you guide your way on. And so you sing it three times, and you, uh, right? I was yeah. just bawling. I'm like, nobody else is no, yoga class. You know, I, I, you, you and me, girl, we would have been the ones. So I got, even before that, we did the I am chanting, where you just say I am. Yes. Oh. That, I'm like single stream down yes. each it's amazing <laughs> yes. right yes yeah. and so you sing that at the end you sing that long time sun chant three times once to bless yourself once to bless you know your family and friends and then the third time to bless the world and i was like oh my god and so the instructor was like we're even blessing the people we don't agree with. And if you have enemies, you know, you're blessing them too. And so just this whole concept of, you know, living that way uh, in, in gratitude and in blessing and in grace for other people, right? Because people who have wronged us, you know, who knows what they're going through. So, um, so yeah, yoga, journaling, and my Monday slash Sunday night practice really helps to ground me. But I, I will say also that um, just the work that, that I, the self-work that I was able to do during the dissertation process, like I came out of it much lighter. So because I let go, it allowed me to let go of a lot of heaviness. And so I have found that I don't need, I, I, don't have as much tuning up to do, you know, I mean, we always have to tune up, but it's like, I, I got rid of some really big boulders. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so I, life is just a lot lighter now. And I'm so thankful. Every time I hear about Kundalini, it really reminds me of the, the definition of yoga is union. Mm -hmm. And Kundalini really does um, a lot more of bringing the all the the unions yeah yes. <laughs> it's really kundalini is the leader of the unionizing of the, <laughs> of the, right. of, of the yoga community yes. yes um and i have to this is this is not part of my questions but i'm just uh, uh what's your sign i'm a leo i'm on the ah. leo virgo cusp okay because i heard you mention balance you know ah. so many mm -hmm. times and i was like mm, i don't know what her sign is <laughs> <laughs> what is your sign by the way i'm a libra oh so i'm always like balance 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 <laughs> i had to learn that i wasn't born with it ah <laughs> uh, i lifelong be like it's out of balance you know <laughs> God, it's exhausting. <laughs> oh, this is a perfect uh, segue, though. I have, you know, my uh, questions yes. printed on my wall. That's why I'm looking up this way. Okay, let's get started on my rapid fire ending questions. Okay, what was your first car? Oh, God. <laughs> it was my mom's hand, hand me down to my sister, handed down to me. It was a Ford Tempo. Ooh, what color was it? Blue. 
Nice. <laughs> women, I, I love to ask this because women don't get asked about their cars. It's true. It's true. Mm-hmm. I haven't thought about that tempo in a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, when did you get your first period? Oh, my gosh. I think I was young. I was 11. Okay. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, toilet paper. This is very divisive. Over, under? Over. I used to be Thank an God. under person. Now I'm an over person. I'm glad you came to the light. <laughs> <laughs> and do you, it bothers uh, me now when it's under like I switch it around <laughs> same it's such a thing it's such a thing we had a family meeting about it in the oh last like God. six months <laughs> my husband was like I'm calling a family meeting <laughs> who is doing this That's so funny. it's very serious business yeah uh, do you own a Lizzo album I do not do you own a Lizzo single? I don't. <laughs> All right. Well, I ask that just to be like, get into it. If uh, <laughs> if you like women's empowerment, <laughs> I adore her. Cilantro, yes or no? Yes. I recently learned, though, that some people have a gene or lack of gene that makes it taste like soap. Yes. That's why I ask it because I find that fascinating. And I know people in my life like that. I had a friend. Uh, we knew each other from Massachusetts and we both ended up in Austin and we would be like at Austin million Tex-Mex restaurants and she'd be there picking cilantro out of the Pico. And I'd be like, what is your problem? And I'm just trying to eat before she picks all the cilantro. Yeah. And she's like, it's disgusting. I hate it. And I was like, what is your problem? And then years, not like what's your problem, but I was like, all right, she doesn't like it. You know, years later I read that and I sent it to her. I was like, <gasps> That's you. Yeah. And soap. Oh my gosh. I feel so bad. Yeah, gross. No like, no wonder she'd food? sit there yeah. picking it out of the Pico. Who wants their food to taste like soap? But it's so delicious for those of us who do have a gene or don't have a gene or whatever. <laughs> when you drink a latte, mm-hmm. what kind of milk? Uh, mm. it, my milk my answer is different today than it would be in the past. Sure. Whole milk. Mm. Nice. Mm-hmm. What did you drink in the past? It would have been non-fat. Okay. Oh, I like your I like your um growth. Yeah. <laughs> 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 winter, spring, summer, or fall? Oh lately it's been winter. I kind of like the cozying up kind of aspect. And Texas has a great winter. Yes, it does. <laughs> and it's such a reprieve from the heat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So where are you in the birth order, family of origin? I'm last. I'm number five. Oh, five out of five. Oh, that's an interesting one. You're the baby. Yeah, I'm the baby. I, I used to say I'm the youngest. I'm not the baby. <laughs> yeah, I like that. We'll go with that because I have, yeah, I have a, I have a, youngest but she leads from behind (laughs) (laughs) what was your kindergarten teacher's name oh my gosh she was my favorite i'll always remember her name her name was miss lucky (gasps) oh god how could you forget that i know right and then she got married like i had her for kindergarten and first grade and she got married i think i was in first grade by then And a lot of us had her for kindergarten and first grade. And like, we all started crying. I don't think we understood what it meant to get married. (laughs) We thought she was going away. I don't know. 
So then she She's, became Miss Thompson, but she was always Miss Lucky in my mind. Oh, uh, yeah. We're Lucky Thompson. Let's yes. hyphenate that for yes. her. <laughs> All right. And the last one is uh, tell me three kitchen appliances you have. Oh, these are fun, by the way. Um, so the one that I've totally been using, first of all, this COVID, the, the blessing in the COVID for me has been, I've been cooking a lot and it's, it's been very enjoyable. So I've been using a lot of the Instant Pot mm, okay. and then I have this handheld like immersion blender uh-huh, uh-huh, yep. And then those are like the two ones that I usually use. I use the most, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Those are, I love that. I use that one for soup a lot. Yeah. Yes. And I've been making a, a Dutch baby lately. Ooh. Oh, my God. Very nice. So easy, too. And it's so much easier to just stick the immersion blender in there and cleanup is so much easier and everything. So mm-hmm. it's my new best friend. Good. Hot tips about kitchen appliances. <laughs> <laughs> cool was there anything else you want to share with everyone before we um yeah I think so (laughs) sure well I I got into working with youth and helping them low-income youth to access college particularly because um in undergrad I did an internship where I worked with foster kids and I realized I used to think the whole pull your self up by the bootstraps thing but then I'm then I learn the reality of other people's lives and I realize and I was so very judgmental and stuff so and so I realized like I I don't even how can I make a judgment on people's lives I, I don't even know what their lives are so anyway um and the thing about working with youth and helping them so many people want to go to college and don't have support or access and so when they are able to get support then they overwhelmingly are able to go to college and I think this holds true for those kids and for all of us and that is we are so much more than we think we are and um and to just remember that you know and also to challenge yourself to look at the pain and um so that so that it can so that you can heal it and and it's not going to kill you it it actually will will help you find more freedom Mm -hmm. that's been my experience anyway yep robert frost yeah the only way the best way out is through yes that's right Mm-hmm. Well, cool. That seems like a wonderful spot to uh, wrap this up. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And I want to remind everyone that you can find me on all the social medias at LaJoy Society, which is L-A-J-O-I-E Society. Um, Instagram, Facebook, and the website is LaJoySociety.com. Um, so this is, you know, season two. Uh, go back and listen to season one if you haven't. Um, there's a bunch of great uh, stories and episodes and the women um, showing up, you know, in a brave, in a brave way to share our stories. Um, thank you all for listening and uh, rate, review, subscribe, all that fun stuff. And thank you so much, Lorna, for jumping on and sharing yourself and your story with us. Absolutely. Thank you, Jesse. All right. Goodbye, everyone. Everything up to this point has led me here and there's no
So pain. 